This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So one of the main events of the last 10 years is the publication of my longtime collaborator, Nick Blurton-Jones' book, 2016. We've waited for decades. Uh, it takes a long time to do what he did in that book. Theoretically, very thoughtful, well-warranted hypotheses he's testing with demographic data. I, I, I recommend it very highly. And one positive review uh, said, um, was, was positive about the book and also mentioned, enlivened by the photographs of Jim O'Connell, who is also a part of this tripartite long-term collaboration. I'm taking advantage of some of uh, Jim's photographs and what I'm going to try to do in 14 minutes. Let's see. Yeah. Um, so, wow, what are we certain about? I, you know, this is science. So my ideas have changed about so many things, um, and I expect they'll continue to, but I think we all mostly, uh, fairly certain, that we, we got to be human long before the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years, long before agriculture. And that makes the places where we find people living on wild food and solving foraging problems every day an opportunity to see what those are and, and how people do it. Uh, and they vary remarkably by sex, age, and local ecology, both the problems and the solutions. But I can make these generalizations, uh, you know, maybe a few exceptions here and there, but really not very many. Globally, where people are foraging, men tend to prioritize things that come in really big packages, produce real bonanzas, but they're very unpredictable. Women tend to specialize in things that are very reliable. They come in smaller packages. And kids, they try in a lot of places to be and are very active foragers, but they're not big enough or strong enough to fully cover their nutritional requirements. It's also true across all the examples that we've got that in a foraging population, actually this is true in all human populations, that nobody eats all they acquire or acquires all they eat. Uh, the things that men tend to target go around to everybody. Everybody claims a share. They do not go especially to their own mates and offspring. Women, on the other hand, their daily take is what makes sure the kids get fed every day. And a fourth thing that's true, generally, uh, in, in, well, every, all of us here in this room and, and um, people everywhere on the planet rely on fire and cooking. So what's likely well, we are here in a kind of um, political economy and ecology that's different from what, what's been going on over the history of human evolution. And the Holocene especially is, is really different from the Pleistocene. So the Holocene is this last 10,000 years when we get this real equilibration in, in climate. But even where... Uh, we're, we're looking at uh, the only, it's only us moderns that are left on the planet, but, but even where people are part-time foragers or where they're using motor vehicles or firearms or metal pots and pans, all things that are very recent, even there, 
we can learn enormous things by paying attention to the trade-offs they face. So these illustrations show those Hadza guys who have posed for their picture on a giraffe. It may look like this was group foraging, but the way these guys do it is one hunter at a time. But if it's a, an animal that's well struck, others then join in the the tracking, and everybody comes to the kill. And these guys have posed on this giraffe. But there they are, using these projectile weapons, which archaeologists tell us weren't around until the Upper Paleolithic. So this is a kind of technology we can't take deeply into the past. They put metal tips on their arrows. That's a Hadza great-grandmother there. She's using a metal pot for the thing that her grandchild is waiting for dinner. And um, then the, so these middle photographs are from Australia, the Ayara in the, in the center part, and the Mardu in the western desert. And these guys are using firearms. And... Um, motor vehicles, and yet we can learn from the trade-offs they face. And, and then finally, this Aceh woman, so these are foragers in eastern Paraguay, there she is, using a steel-headed axe. Nevertheless, we can, by paying attention to the problems people face and how they solve them, what we see is that the trade-offs that they have to solve Social trade-offs, gastric trade-offs that are ultimately reproductive can account for the kind of variation that we see. Um, so what would we like to know? Well, we, we know something about the trade-offs that we can see where we can actually watch them, watch people facing them. What were the trade-offs for our ancestors and our collaterals? Uh, not enough time to go into the, well, maybe I have to a little bit. So this, we've seen figures that show some of this, what, what the map is showing uh, there. The, the, the yellow is showing Homo erectus getting out right after our genus appears. It gets out of Africa into the temperate and tropical old world um, where, where there had not been um, uh, hominines before. Uh, then the Neanderthals are, they're kind of covering up some of the Homo erectus space, and uh, they are outside of Africa. And then the, the lineage that gave us almost all of our genes gets out of Africa maybe only 50,000 years ago, woo, to Australia, to Europe, and um, then populations stay very low. So one of the things that, that Nick spends a lot of time on in this book is what he calls the forager population paradox. Wherever we see people hunting and gathering, where people do good demography, and that ain't easy uh, to really create believable life tables, populations are always growing. And they can't be always growing, otherwise we'd be up to the moon in elephants, as, as Darwin <laughs> reminded us. Even at the lowest level of population growth we see, if you had, if you had started with 100 people and populations were growing at a quarter of a percent a year, in 10,000 years there would be 7 trillion people. That's three orders of magnitude more than we've already got. So... Why did populations stay so low so long? And then there were places where they didn't, and there was spreading. Boy, would we like to know uh, how to account for that. 
So what, um, what do we do now? Well, first of all, one of the important things about our, our Hadza project was um, uh, O'Connell being an archaeologist was really paying attention to the archaeological reflection of the behavior that we're looking at and um, more attention to that, how the sort of behavior we see is reflected in the archaeological record. You can't just dig it up and let it talk to you. You need to have a way to go at that relationship, and especially for questions about fire and cooking. And, of course, more paleoecology, so we can really understand what the opportunities and constraints are, including fire, spreading grasslands meant more landscape fires and so on. And I, maybe I should skip this. I, w- I was asking Anne if, if this is possible. <laughs> can the population geneticists maybe, as we get more, more data and more ancient DNA, can, can they, the, the favored hypothesis for people who confront this forager population paradox and have tried to model it is that populations grow, but then they crash. They crash and they go locally extinct. Well, can the, is there any way that we can get something out of the population genetics about that? Maybe not. Um, so now I'm turning to life history and reproduction, very related here, that we've, we've talked about how um, actually chimpanzees are closer to us than they are to gorillas. So our closest lineage uh, living is, in, is chimpanzees and bonobos, but our life histories are different in these fascinating ways which... My favorite hypothesis is what underlies so many other things about us. Much greater longevity in hunting and gathering mortality regimes. A third of the adult female years lived are post-fertile. Uh, so what is, what is that about? Maturation takes longer. But weaning is earlier, so both birth intervals are way shorter. And if we do all the allometries properly, they're really short. I'm going to try to get at that. But here are three figures to illustrate this life history. We're just looking at the female part of the population uh, pyramid for three different hunter-gatherer populations. I can't say very much about them. There isn't time. But um, the, the orange bars are the, are the girls who are not, haven't had their first kid yet. The green bars are the women in their childbearing years and then the golden years above, right? And what the length of the bars, the width of the bars, is the fraction of the female population in those ages. But what I want to underline is that Life expectancy in all these cases is well less than 40, but the reason for that is because of all the infant and juvenile mortality, all the little short lives that go into that average. And if in, in any of these populations you made it through to adulthood, chances are so good that you will live well beyond your fertility. So, what is likely? Well, since I'm the one who's talking, I'm going to tell you what I think is most likely. Uh, and actually, I think some people will, uh, would be prepared to agree with this. A genus Homo evolved in Africa as these climate cycles were reducing the forests and spreading savannas, much more seasonal environments, landscape fires in the in these savannas, but the kinds of plants that do well in savannas are really different than the things that do well in my heavens in um, 
uh, forests, and uh, to take these resources, size and strength really matter. So little kids, uh, they try, so these are hods of photographs, little kids try, but they're just not strong enough, versus great ape foods, where if you're a chimpanzee, while you are nursing and your mom is carrying you along, you are also acquiring your own food. Within the first year, we know from the isotopes that uh, those kids are feeling, feeding themselves a part of their diet before they're even weaned. And see how the life history looks different? In, our, in the case of humans, what we've got is this extended... Uh, slower aging, extended longevity, it goes with that story, hence this hypothesis that, that what happened was the subsidies that came from the older females uh, shortened the birth spacing for the, their fertile daughters, more descendants, that kind of longevity increased in future generations, and we can't go back and look. So mathematical modeling is um, a way to get at this, and this is a recent version of modeling Peter Kim at um, uh, Sydney University. What you see on the panel on the left is showing with this agent-based model the equilibrium if you have chimpanzee-like, great ape-like life history and um, uh, longevity stays essentially the same as does the end of female fertility. Once uh, the few older females that actually are coming to the end of their fertility, once we allow in the model, allow them to subsidize the, the uh, dependent juveniles, then what happens is the, if, if, the, if the simulations escape the basin of attraction, they move to the human-like longevity, but they keep female fertility stuck there at the same place because it's the grandmother effect that does it. And what happens is it's, this has a huge effect on the boys. So I'm not going to have time to talk about all these things, but I was showing just the female side of the life history. Now, using the same sources, I've included the males and what happens when this, when this life history change with, with female fertility ending at the same place happens and longevity increases in our lineage is we get all these old fertile males, all these old guys, way more fertile males than females. And across all kinds of animals, including even invertebrates, when you have male bias sex ratios in the mating ages, mate guarding comes to be the winning strategy. And in our lineage, what's so especially important is that now we've got all those old males, what, what the other guys think of you is really important, whether you can claim a mate and hang on to her, and their respect really matters, hence these bonanzas, so goes the hypothesis. Well, there is more to say about brains, but um, the, the, the set of things that fit together here is, is astonishing, and uh, I, I, I pass on to uh, Alyssa to add some stuff about kids that I would have talked about if I'd been more organized. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.